The Defense Contract Audit Agency, or DCAA, found out something the hard way. If it takes too long to audit cost reimbursement support documents held by contractors, tough. The government is still responsible for those costs. A recent Armed Services Contract Board of Appeals handed that outcome in a case my next guest is going to explain. Zach Prince is a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter, and he joins me now in studio. Zach, good to have you in. Thanks for having me, Tom. So tell us more about this case. Uh, I guess it revolves around the fact that records, like timesheets, have to be held by contractors, but not forever. That's right. The facts of this case will be pretty familiar to any companies that are dealing with cost-type contracts. The costs were incurred 2008, 2009, 2010. DCAA didn't conduct an audit of those costs until sometime in 2015. An audit report didn't come out until 2017. As happens pretty frequently, by the time the government gets around to claiming costs were improperly supported, the people who know enough to back it up and the documents are long gone. So in this case, the government challenged about $600,000 in costs that the contractor incurred, arguing that they simply didn't have enough timesheets to support those. In response, the board said, well, there's a contract clause here that has a record retention period. It incorporates by reference FAR 4.7 which provides that for timesheets, the contractor has to retain those for two years after the close of the fiscal year in which the costs were incurred. Right. So the DCAA took five years to get around to auditing that contract. Well, golly, and the whole case dragged on longer than you have to even retain tax records. (laughs) That's right. To be fair to DCAA, the contractor here didn't get its cost proposals submitted on time. Uh, They submitted their cost proposals in 2013 for both fiscal years 09 and 10. Wow. Uh, They're supposed to do it six months after the close of the fiscal year. But the impact of that is a day-for-day extension of the record retention period. So even with that extension, DCAA didn't start the audit, much less finish it, until eight months after the expiration of the period. And just as background, what is the process at DCAA? How do they, do we know how they choose a particular contract to audit since there's what, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of contract actions in a given year. Is it random till they get around to a particular contract five years later? Uh, There's a risk assessment that they conduct, and then to some extent there is random sampling. This is coming from a time period where DCAA was incredibly delayed in all of their cost audits. It's astonishing that in 2022 we're seeing a dispute about costs that were incurred in 2008, 9, and 10, but a few years ago this wouldn't have been at all surprising. This got the attention of Congress, and there were several provisions in National Defense Authorization Acts forcing DCAA to act faster. Right. And we were talking about timesheets because this was a cost reimbursement or hourly type of contract, and the company was called Double Shot, correct? That's right. Whatever that is. <laughs> but besides timesheets, does this record retention to support cost reimbursement extend to other types of documents, say travel expenses or material expenses? It does. FAR 4.7 details uh, different categories of cost and different categories of support and has different periods applicable to each. So this would apply to receipts and to other backup uh, under a same sort of analysis. This is an important decision for contractors to track because in almost every cost dispute I've been involved in, it involves DCAA challenging the sufficiency of backup support long, long, long after those costs were incurred. Right. In this case, then, DCAA said, sorry, these are disallowed because you can't document them. And the company then appealed to the Board of Contract Appeals. The prevailing document, then, is the retention period and not the costs themselves. 
That's right. The board wasn't exactly sympathetic to the government's argument that the board should ignore the government's regulations. The government drafted these regulations. They're theirs. Nonetheless, the government was arguing that it's not fair to enforce the contract as written. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter, specializing in contract disputes and contract protests. Well, what's to stop a company from saying, golly, it's one day after the record's retention is over for this big contract. Let's shred everything and let's make up new cost reimbursement that we can really sock it to them. <laughs> oh, well, something that I think is worthwhile noting about this case is the board emphasized that the company had proven they paid these people. So they paid their employees and they demonstrated it. It was just about whether the time cards were adequate. So uh, they do have an obligation to submit their incurred cost proposal within six months after the close of the fiscal year. And, of course, there's the False Claims Act in the background acting as the uh, uh, the hammer that's going to fall down if they violate it. Sure. And just as a background question, if a company is a small company or even some large companies use third-party payroll services – the ADPs of the world and so on. Do we know how long those records are kept? That's a cloud-based type of service, and it could be kept forever so far as we know. It could be. I'm not sure. I would expect up to 10 years, but it's probably dependent on the contract that you've got with those companies. Right. So even if you don't have time cards, you can still verify to the government that people were paid on a certain date. And then if you have the right coding, then it could prove that it was for that contract. Typically, yes. Although if you're looking at costs that were incurred back in the mid-2000s, you may not have had that sort of uh, outside vendor. So your advice would be for contractors then, even though the statutory period might expire for given sets of records, it's probably worth keeping them. Even if you win, you still can avoid the whole process of going through the ASBCA, which is expensive and time-consuming. Absolutely. This is an after-the-fact defense. It's not a best practice from an initial perspective. Initially, you should set a policy that you retain records for as long as the government could possibly have a claim. So that should be six to 10 years, depending on the type of record, because the statute of limitations on the False Claims Act is up to 10 years. And what is your experience that the large contractors, the ones that have giant compliance departments that have been dealing with the government since you know, 1927 or whatever the case might be, do they tend to keep these records much longer than the statutory requirement or the FAR requirement? They do. Uh, Ten years after final payment under a contract is pretty typical. So that might lull DCAA into a false sense of the ability to get after these things, even though they're way behind the FAR requirement. That's right. Uh, DCAA doesn't always appreciate the difference between small businesses Uh, especially small businesses that are operating in contingency environments, uh, which is where I see a lot of these disputes arising, Iraq and Afghanistan contractors, and your big entities like your Lockheeds and your Raytheons. Interesting. All right. Well, good lessons learned here. Zach Prince is a partner at Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Okay, close your eyes and imagine. Well, unless you're driving. Yes, imagine you bought a scratch ticket from the Iowa Lottery. Or someone gave you one. Yes, right, and you scratch, and you've won. Won big. Yes, in fact, there are 13 holiday games with big cash prizes. And if you don't win, play it again. You can still win up to $100,000 in the VIP club. But you have to enter and see rules and complete details at ialottery.com slash VIP. Yes, thank you. 